Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. A couple of weeks ago, we began a brand new series that's going to lead us right up to Christmas called Who's Your One? This is a series that emphasizes the necessity of sharing your faith, doing something that the Bible calls evangelism. Now, in my experience, most people, when they hear the word evangelism, uh, they balk at it. Most people, when they hear the word evangelism, there's something that's a little intimidating about, about it. In fact, some of you, every time I use that word, may even be triggered by a visual that you think is not you. And, you, and there's always been this lifetime struggle maybe uh, in your life that you said, look, I know scripture says I ought to do this, but I've got this vision in my head of what this looks like. And pastor, that's not my personality. I just don't do that kind of thing. And my hope is this morning to be able to set you free from whatever stereotype that is. And so I want to begin this morning by maybe pointing out what those collective images might look like. Because in my experience, when most people who are intimidated by evangelism or triggered by the term, when they hear the word, well, they think of something that might look a little something like this. Take a look. Oh, there's a spot. Perfect. Thank you, Lord. Invited. God bless you guys. Barista, what's going on? God bless you. Hey, how's it going, man? I want the normal, my usual. Yeah, actually, we have a couple girls in line already. If I could just get you to move to the back, and I'll help you as soon as I'm done with that. Sorry about that. Last be first, first to be last. Dude, do you go to church at all? Do you go to church at all? So do you go to church at all? Hey, is this seat open? Hey, is this seat available? Uh, Dude, I just wanted to knock out some Devos real quick. Spend some time with Jesus. I woke up kind of late this morning. Yeah, come on, let's go to Let me sit down. I just want to share something from God's word. He hit me up in my Devos this morning. I was like, I got to share this. Genesis 1, 1. Thirsty, huh? Getting some water? Yeah. Yeah, I know the living water. I was noticing that you're drawing some stuff over here. Back before when I wasn't a Christian, I, I was making so much money as a graphic designer. You been born again? You been born again? Born again? And you need to quit walking in the flesh. I mean, obviously you don't really know God, your tattoos, and you know, in your ear and stuff. If you don't start out the day by just bathing yourself in prayer, the day doesn't even go that well. You're not realizing that there is a God. He sent Jesus to die for you. Why don't you see that? And in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, I just would go to these crazy parties. It was crazy. Well, I mean, just cash, like crazy, but uh, but I've left all that behind. Now I'm a Christian. You can't live life without God. He's not real. He's here. I can't yes, see him. Yes, I'm just not getting through to you. God I can't is real. Touch him. Yeah, you can't touch Africa, but Africa exists. I just have to say, I'm blessed. Too blessed to be stressed by the devil's mess. What's holding you back from committing your life to Jesus Christ? I... It's probably the sin in your life is what's going on. <laughs> scared? Hell is scary. Why don't you look at that girl right there? Look at her. She's gonna die. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. She's gonna die. If you're to die, where do you think you would go? Man, that sounded hot. I wonder how hot hell is. Hopefully you don't go there. Oh, this is good. The New Testament is so just applicable. Have you guys noticed this? Hey, you gotta be washed by the blood of the lamb. I mean, so that you are justified, sanctified, future glorified. I mean, this is amazing. You gotta come out. Do you drive a Volkswagen? 
Yeah, yeah, I do. But regardless, man, you got to come to church. Hey, remember what I said? Hell is scary. Would it bring you comfort to know this isn't what we're talking about? You feel better? Here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. Most of what really happens at the level of evangelism and sharing your faith is not nearly that flashy. The truth is the real thing is actually a lot more meaningful and a lot less noticeable. Uh, and that's what I want us to see today from the first chapter of John. And I want to speak from this account to talk about the value of one. One. We live in a culture that makes that valuing one seem almost counterintuitive to us. We live in a culture that, that minimizes smallness. We live in a culture that marginalizes singularity. And yet, there's a lot of value in one. Even though, again, our culture's been telling us for years that there's no value. Lay's Potato Chips, several decades ago, in fact, made a lot of money selling their product by telling people that no one could. See, they, they still got you two decades later. What's the value of one cookie, right? Why could you just eat one? What about just one piece of cake? Actually, a friend of mine told me the other day that if you eat the entire cake without cutting it, you've technically only eaten one piece. So, I like that strategy heading into Thanksgiving. That might be pretty good. Uh, but, but what's the deal with, with just one? What's the deal with smallness? What's the deal? What's the value in any one dollar? Here's, here's what I want you to see. The scriptures, by contrast, unveil the inherent and, and immeasurable value of one. One pearl of great price that Pastor Phil read about at the outset of our time together. One lost sheep that apparently is so valuable that the shepherd can leave the 99 in open field to go search for that one. One wayward son that a father puts his entire state on hold for so that he can look at the horizon and wait for that son coming home from him. There's a lot of value in one. And today we're going to see the value of one. One faithful act of obedience one effort to share your story, one invitation to church, one message of hope, one conversation with a friend or coworker that could change the trajectory of their life for the rest of their life and for the rest of eternity. But here's the question you have to ask yourself. Can you name one? I mean, seriously, let's, let's ask that for a moment. Is there one person in your life right now who is a follower of Jesus who was not a follower of Jesus and the only reason they crossed that bridge was because of you? How many people have you personally influenced? How many? You know, in the North American church, the conversion ratio on average is 80 to 1. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. That means it takes 80 people in a church to reach one person, bring that one person to faith in Christ. That's what it takes. So you wonder, well, what about the other 79? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Now, I, I was encouraged, actually, when in preparation for this message, I did a little statistical research for our Covenant family, and I found that at Covenant, that ratio is actually 23 to 1. My heart skipped a beat when I saw that. I said, this is amazing. We're better than average. We're like a B. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And, and so I, I'm, I was excited about that. I'm encouraged by that. I'm thankful for that. But, but here's the thing, brothers and sisters, if it still takes 23 of us to reach one, what are the other 22 doing? That's what we want to ask ourselves this morning. Is there anybody who has come to Jesus because of you? 16 verses I want us to focus in on. We're not going to cover all of them in depth today, but they together make up this larger narrative that I want us to pull some principles out of. Verses 35 to 51, and the invitation in these short verses to come and see occurs twice, 
And the phrase, we have found, occurs twice, which is profound, I think. This is a, a, a record of people that are introducing other people to Jesus. And so I, what I want us to see in our, our few moments together here is the power of one. Four ways, in fact, to see the power of one. Here's the first one. There is power in just one transformed life. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew's mentioned three times in four Gospels, and every single time he's mentioned, that's how he's identified by the Gospel writers. Simon Peter's brother. You know, there are times where you go through life, and the only way someone knows you is by your relationship to someone else. Back in the late 90s, Billy Graham came to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, a city that we were not living far from. I was pastoring a local church there, and they got wind in the midst of kind of setting up for all of their crusade efforts that my wife Amy had had some experience managing bookstores. She actually, that's, that's how she paid our way through seminary, managing a bookstore. And so they tapped her skills, and they asked, and she volunteered to handle all of the merchandise, the books, the clothing, the tapes, the CDs, everything that, that you might buy that had Billy Graham Evangelistic Association on it. And there were probably somewhere between 18 and 24 of these stations all the way around. If you've ever been to a big concert in the Coliseum, you know how it works. About every other entrance, you're going to see this table set up with all this merchandise. My wife was responsible for staffing all of those, for making sure the merchandise was accounted for, that the financial books were balanced at the end of the day. And, and I really didn't have to do anything, but I got a lot of benefit out of that. I got a pass that allowed me into areas where the general public couldn't typically go. I got free books. That's always, that's my love language right there, free books. Uh, I, I got different kinds of things. I got to meet some of the platform personalities, which was cool. But, but when I would go into some of these areas, people would start by looking at me like, like, who, like, who are you? And then eventually it would dawn on them who I was. And this is how I was identified for the entire week that we were part of this crusade. Oh, you're Amy's husband. That's it. Nobody knew anything else about me in that stadium except who I was married to. They knew who she was. They didn't know who I was. And, and, and yeah, I was secure enough uh, in my own identity to be Mr. Amy Rainey that week. That was totally fine with me. But, you know, there's a lot of folks that live life like that. They're always attached to somebody. They always feel like they're, they're under somebody else's shadow and it can be difficult, particularly if you've got an older sibling or somebody else, a parent perhaps, and you're wondering, how am I ever going to come out from under that? How will I ever find an identity that's separate from that? You have in Andrew someone to commiserate with because in the, three, in the only three times that he's mentioned in the Gospels, it's always with that addendum, Simon Peter's brother. It's as if three of the four Gospel writers are trying to write this story about Andrew and all the powerful things that God did through Andrew, but suddenly they realize as they lift their pen from the parchment, hey, nobody's going to know who this dude is, and so they put a parenthetical reference. By the way, if you don't know who he is, it's Simon Peter's brother, so the people who read go, Andrew, Andrew, who is it? Oh, oh, that guy, that guy. So this is how insignificant that he might seem on the surface. But Andrew had a transformed life that his brother witnessed. And here's the, the principle we draw out of that. Had there been no Andrew, there would have been no Peter. 
Were it not for Andrew's transformed life, were it not for Andrew's initiative in saying to his brother, come and see, there would have been no Peter, there would have been no Pentecost, there would have been no 3,000 people saved, there would have been no church potentially at Antioch, or at least not one with the, the strength that we read about in the book of Acts. All of this comes back to one transformed life in one individual who has to be identified in terms of his relationship with another for people to even know who he is. That's the power of one. One transformed life. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the late Presbyterian pastor, put it this way, even before the Lord Jesus told his disciples that he would make them fishers of men, Andrew witnessed to his brother and landed the big fisherman, Simon Peter. And so this guy that would preach at Pentecost and 3,000 people would come to Jesus, the first thing that had to happen before any of that could happen was Peter had to be brought to Jesus himself. And so you have this changed man reaching out to another so that he can be changed. And can we admit, that's a tough job for anybody, but it's an especially tough job when it's your brother. Any of you, uh, you got a sibling, a brother or a sister, and you're trying to sell them on something? A particular kind of diet or a brand of exercise or a brand of automobile or a way of doing things. I've got a younger brother and I love him and he loves me, but we are just like night and day, like completely different from each other. And so if we ever start to tell the other one about something that's influenced us, literally the other one will go, I hope I'm not the only one that has that kind of relationship with my sibling. Again, I love him, nothing personal, but we're just that different from each other. And so imagine if you're actually selling your brother on something like this, Peter had to see something in Andrew, didn't he? Somebody that close to you can tell when you smell. Probably slept in the same bedroom all these years, certainly slept in the same house all these years. They know when you're being a fake and when you're the genuine article. And so for Peter to see Jesus, he had to see something in his brother Andrew. And Paul will tell us later exactly the kind of thing he saw in his brother Andrew. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read the following, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are the people who are closest to you, are the people who are closest to me, do they see the result of my walk with Jesus? Or do they just see me living the same kind of life I lived before? Do they just see me reacting to the circumstances and the trials and the tribulations of life in the same way that they do? Do they see me walking in the power of the Spirit such that they can't help but notice that my life has been transformed by the power of the gospel? You know, in the book of Revelation, John, uh, Jesus, through his servant John, writes to seven churches. The last of those in Revelation 3 is this church that if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you're probably familiar with the story, the church at Laodicea. And there's this famous line in the scriptures where Jesus says to that church, I would that you were cold or hot, but, but you're neither one, you're lukewarm, and because of that, I'm going to throw you up. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You're nasty, basically is what he's saying. And I always grew up thinking that that was about zeal. I actually heard preachers saying, you get so excited about that football game Saturday before, and you ought to be psyched out of your mind to come in here and be with Jesus. Well, I've, I've come to understand not everybody worships that way, okay? If you grew up in a Pentecostal tradition and you like to hang from the chandelier, have at it. We have lots of freedom for that here at Covenant, don't we? We do. You want to speak in tongues, you want to get excited, you want to shout, you want to... Most people, that's not who they are. And so if that's not what John is getting at, what's he getting at? Well, I read the background text on this, and it's kind of interesting. You have Laodicea sitting in a city. Upstream from Laodicea is this other 
area called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was well known in that day for its hot springs. Those hot springs would be flowed sometimes by natural flow of a river some, or a creek, sometimes by, by aqueduct, and they would make their way to Laodicea. That was Laodicea's water supply. But by the time they got to Laodicea, they weren't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. Now, downstream from Laodicea was another city called Colossae. You've probably heard of it. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae, the Colossians. That town was known for its cold springs. You beginning to get this? There's hot springs up here. There's cold springs down there. And so essentially, here's what's, here's what's being said. Even if it were possible in the first century to transport that cold water to Laodicea, by the time it gets to Laodicea, it's not going to be cold anymore. It's going to be warm. And the hot springs from Hierapolis come down. Here's what's being said to the church of Laodicea. Hierapolis is known for their hot water. Colossae is known for their cold water. But your city is not known for its water. And in the same way, your church is not known for its faith. Your faith, here's the big, here's the big whack that came to Laodicea. Your faith is unremarkable. There's nothing about it. There's nothing about it that causes people to stand up, to stand at attention, to wonder what's going on there. But nothing bears greater testimony to the power of the gospel like a genuinely transformed life. That's where it starts. This had to be true for Andrew, for his brother to not only pay attention, but to come to Jesus and for the, the results of that to be what we read about in Scripture. That is the power of one transformed life. And then secondly, there's the power of one relationship. Notice in two verses here, in verse 41, back again to, to Andrew, he found his own brother Simon. Four verses later, Philip found Nathaniel. All these people have come to Jesus, and what are they doing? They're going first to the people that they're closest to. They're going first to the people that they know best and, and that mean the most to them. That's what we're asking. In this season of, of this particular uh, message series, going all the way up into Christmas, who's your Philip? Who's your Nathaniel? Who's your Peter? Who's your one? That's, that's essentially what we're asking. That's why you're in the small groups doing what you're doing, uh, practicing what does it mean to share the message of the gospel with someone and to intersect their story with the story of Jesus' death and resurrection and to call them to Jesus. It's the reason we get first names of those people on your list and confidentially we're gathering together in the small groups on a weekly or bi-weekly basis depending on how often you meet as a small group, and we're praying intensely for those people because it is your transformed life and your relationship with them that could make an eternal difference. Charles Spurgeon, that great British Baptist preacher, once said that grace does not run in the blood and regeneration is of neither blood nor birth, which is a wonderful way of saying it doesn't matter who your mama is or who your daddy is, your salvation is between you and your creator. And we believe that here at Covenant. But here's the other side of that coin. Often it happens that God uses one of a household to draw the rest of the household to himself. Have you ever noticed that? You notice how that happens in the scriptures? You notice how that happens even, even in life? It, it, it was the God of Abraham who became the God of Sarah. And then it was the God of Abraham and Sarah who became the God of their son Isaac. And then the God of Isaac who became the God of Jacob. There are two stories in Acts, in fact, where the entire household comes to Christ starting with dad. 
Now that's one thing culturally that hadn't changed in 2,000 years. So let me speak for a moment to the men in the room right now, especially those of you who are husbands and fathers, because gentlemen, some of you have taught your boys well how to take a deer, but you've never taught them how to pray. Some of you have taught your daughters how to change a flat, which is wonderful. They don't need to be dependent on somebody else. But chances are better than average that if that little girl brings a fella home at some point, he's going to be a lot more like you than you want him to be. He's going to be a lot more like you than you will admit, a lot more like me than I would admit. So what kind of person am I being in my own home? What kind of example am I setting so that when that person who is like me happens statistically to walk through that door, that I'm going to see that as a good thing. What kind of spiritual influence do we have even over our own children? Can that man that comes through your door one day lead your daughter spiritually? Is he capable of that? Have you so set the example that he is capable of that? What kind of example are you setting? And I say that for this reason. We love to celebrate the big moments. Big moments, big stories of big conversions, stories of big events. And look, it's great. God moves in those areas. I haven't said really anything about it because so many people in the evangelical world have kind of piled on both positively and negatively. But I'll tell you, I'm, I'm rejoicing over what God's doing with Kanye these days. I really am. I thank God. I mean, think of how many people could potentially come to Christ because of that man's influence that wouldn't listen to anyone who's, what shall we say, typical. Right? Here's a guy. And everybody's like, well, is it real? Is it not? You know what? That's between Kanye and the Lord. But right now, he's talking about Jesus a lot in front of a lot of people. And he don't care what anybody thinks. God has taken that really stubborn attitude and apparently honed it and directed it in a way that's pointing a lot of people to Jesus Christ. I am incredibly thankful for that. And I pray for that, brother, every day uh, because of that thing. But here's what I want you to hear. You don't have to have the popularity of Kanye to do what Scripture's commending you to do here. In fact, it might be better if you didn't. It's actually better to operate without a spotlight, isn't it? Wouldn't you rather? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want all that pressure on me. Isn't it better to, to sometimes to operate in obscurity? Here's the other thing. We love to romanticize those kind of things, revival meetings, big concerts, but it, there is more power in one close relationship than in all of that combined, and it's in you. It's called the Holy Spirit of God motivating you to share the gospel of Jesus, intersect his story with the story of the person in whom you are in relationship with, and invite that person to come and to see. You know, the majority of conversations, I'm talking significant, universe-altering conversations in the long run that have happened have not come from pulpits like this one. They've not come from big stages and concerts. You know where they've come from? Living rooms, tree stands, golf courses, book clubs, machine shops, factory break rooms, some transformed person said to another yet to be transformed person, I have found somebody. Who is that person for you? Because there's power in one transformed life. There is power in one relationship. But here's the other thing. If those two things together really are not, not going to make a difference unless you get to this third thing, there is power in one conversation. You actually have to talk. Look at verse 39. He said to them, come and see. Let me, let, me, let me make a verbal invitation for you to come and find out what I have discovered. Verse 46, a few verses later, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Wait a minute, this guy's from where? And Philip said to him, come and see. These are invitations to simply witness what God is doing. Sometimes that's in your own life. 
How many people in front of me are aware of the work of God to the point that you can confidently say to your friends, I want you to come and see this is what God is doing in my life. How many of us are confident enough in what God is doing among this congregation to be able to say to our people and our friends and our, our neighbors and our coworkers, come, join me on a Sunday morning. Come and see what God is doing. And by the way, did you know how many people are attending church now that weren't attending church? Do you know how they got here? statistically? 2% came because of a public announcement. They saw our sign, they saw a website, they saw a Facebook page, they saw something. And it, it, those things are important. But, but it's interesting to me as I look at both our electronic media and, and our, our physical connect cards as to how people, you know, we say, how did you find us? If it's a public announcement, more than the website, more than social media, they say, we just saw the sign driving past. So we, we thought. But even then, only 2% of the people who come, come for that reason. Two. Another 2% come for a, a, a whole, totally different reason. Then there's 6% that came because they're invited by their pastor. Apparently, not as many people listen to me as I would prefer. Okay. Another 6% from organized visits. We all got together here on a Tuesday night, we prayed, and then we did this, we, and we, we broke, and we dispersed, and we went to homes, 86% came at the invitation of a friend. Think about the power of one conversation. You know where I learned this from? I didn't learn it in seminary. I learned it from my father. You've been around here long enough. You've heard this story before, but I know we got a lot of new folks as well. My, my daddy, when I was born, was a moonshiner. If you don't know what that is, he was a mechanic by day, and one of his clients in his shop was the Greenville County, South Carolina Sheriff's Department. And he, he treated them well. He handled everything fine. He didn't do anything underhanded. Uh, he maintained their automobiles really well. But one advantage to that particular account was you get to lift the hood and see what they got under the hood. And that was really important for my dad because at night he needed something under his hood that was a little bigger and a little faster because by daytime he turned wrenches and by night he was basically a white redneck drug dealer. That's what he was. Um, and then somebody didn't give up on him and the Lord just transformed his life and he came out of that life. And so I got to grow up in the home of a, of a godly man as a result. And my dad, I mean, he, his, the Lord so completely changed his life from the time I was in diapers that it just, it was all over him. And for the rest of, even now, into his life, you see that in him. I can remember as an eight-year-old boy being down in an oil pit, all right? So if you don't know what that is, you drive big, you have like anything, 26,000 pounds, gross vehicle weight or more, you, you don't generally jack that up. Most of the time, you got to drive it over this big hole in the ground, then you walk down in the hole, uh, and you do all the servicing underneath, okay? So as an eight-year-old boy, yes, it was an ocean nightmare. I'm down in this pit, 30,000 pounds of weight over the top of all of us. I got my father over here draining the oil out of the front end. There's a couple of mechanics back here doing a couple of things, probably draining the fluid out of the rear end or something like that. And you know what my father's talking about? Jesus. I remember that as an eight-year-old boy. And it wasn't slick like what you saw. It, it just, it just kind of naturally oozed out of him. This is who he was. And he did this all the time. And I'm going to tell you something. Most of those men that were in that pit with him, they listened politely. A few of them made fun of him. I, I was there to witness that. But there are some diesel truck mechanics that are going to be in heaven one day because my daddy knew the power of one conversation. 
in an oil pit, not in a big stadium, not from some prominent pulpit, not under a bunch of lights, but simply with the power of God wherever it happens. That's the power of one conversation. So what kind of conversations are you having? That's the question. I said, my dad's never changed in this. Last summer, I was back at their home for a couple of days, and it just so happened that one morning about 4 o'clock, he woke me up, and he was having some issues with a, a rapid heartbeat and some things that just weren't right, chest pains radiating to the left arm, all that, all that kind of stuff. And so it was my job then to take my father to the ER. And they had him all hooked up, wires, needles stuck in everywhere for several hours trying to figure out what's going on. And about four hours in, I'm walking back into where he's at from the ER waiting room where our now 14-year-old son was freaking out about his grandfather and what's going to happen to him. And I, when I walked in that room, there was a nurse that had just came in right in front of me and she was checking his vitals and everything else. And my dad, with drugs in his veins, trying to figure out with the, you know, all the, the aggravation and the pain that's involved with ER, just looks up at this nurse and he said, young lady, thank you for taking care of me. I really appreciate this. Do you know Jesus? Just so natural and so that this is the power of one conversation. Does Jesus really go with you everywhere? Because if he does, he will get a mention. I found somebody. One conversation, one invitation could change everything for that person. But now listen carefully to this last thing. Because none of this other stuff matters if it's not for this. Right? You, can, you can be excited about stuff that doesn't matter. Amen? Yeah. Like me being upset yesterday because LSU beat Arkansas. Like I didn't see that coming. Right? You can be excited, upset. You get all emotionally wrapped up in things that don't matter. That's why this last thing's important. It's the value of one Savior. These guys are not trying to sell Amway products. They found something bigger. Look at verse 41. We have found the Messiah. Now that's an audacious claim. Fast forward four more verses to verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now from the standpoint of Jewish history, this is huge. The one that was first promised to Abraham. The one that David was promised would come through his line. The one the prophets described with great detail. We just saw him. He was in a river with his cousin. We're not even making this up. He invited us to follow him. you got to come see this. See, it doesn't matter what you find unless what you find actually means something. This is actually valuable. But we have somebody to talk about. Jesus put it this way, and this goes back to what Pastor Phil read at the outset of our message. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. So you're walking out in this place that's either swamp land, maybe it's been designated wetlands, it can't be developed, it's not worth anything, but you're out there with a metal detector and you start digging around and you find something of immeasurable value, and what do you do? You look around to make sure nobody else is out there with you, and then you cover that thing back up, and then you go home home and you empty your bank account if you have to because there's something more valuable in that field that nobody else knows about. Jesus says that's the value of the kingdom. That's the value that followers of Jesus place on the gospel. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold everything he had and bought it. So, so when you say come and see, 
And when we do it from a standpoint of having a truly transformed heart, when all things really become new, everything else in your life becomes yard sale eligible. That's what happens. I mean everything. What could possibly be a greater passion for any of us than Jesus? Your family? I think I remember him saying something about hating your father and your mother if you're going to be my disciple. Does that mean I have to hate my... No, but it does mean you've got to get the pecking order right, and Jesus is at the top. That's where it goes. Entertainment? Sports? I, Amy got a little aggravated with me yesterday because I watched more than the normal amount of football and because uh, I love the sport, and, and my team wasn't even playing yesterday. But I'll tell you the reason why I was watching. For you Alabama fans, I love you, but God bless you. I was rooting for, for LSU last week, and I'm sorry about that. I really No, I'm not really sorry. But I was rooting because I wanted you all knocked off your pedestal. And so this week, I was rooting, apparently totally in vain, for the Arkansas Razorbacks because I wanted LSU to have the same fate you all had last week at their hands uh, because, number one, I don't like LSU. And number two, I, I, I want my team to get further up, right? So if you lose and LSU loses, you see how this works? So I'm popcorn watching this happen yesterday. Didn't quite turn out the way I wanted it to. Listen, I love that sport. There's nothing wrong with getting excited about a sport or a hobby or something. But let me tell you something. When eternity comes, when that last second ticks off the clock and everybody stands naked and vulnerable before Jesus, nobody's going to care who won yesterday. Nobody's going to care how many trophies you got in your trophy case, how many wins and losses you have. That means squat. All of that stuff is yard sale eligible compared to what we're talking about right now. And I'll tell you this, the power in one life, in one relationship, one conversation coming directly from the truth that there was a God who was sinned against by our first parents in such a way that he could have damned the whole lot of us with, and would have rightfully done so, but instead he wraps himself in human flesh and he lives among our crap and he died as our substitute and he bore the full wrath of what was due us and then he showed overwhelming victory over our sin, over death, over the grave, he rose bodily, he ascended to the Father, and he is coming back for you and me. That's a Savior worth talking about. That's a gospel that is worth sharing. And so what does it mean? What does it mean? Shouldn't we not have the enthusiasm of a Philip, of an Andrew? Come and see. You, you, you just got to come and experience this. Three things I want to tell you here. First off, this story tells us we have to commit to being an intentional witness. And here's, here's just the simple truth. If this is not happening naturally in your life by this point, it's not going to come naturally. You're going to have to make something happen. You're going to have to discipline yourself. That's why our small groups are doing this intentional training. As we speak right now, there are folks that were in the 9 o'clock service that are in a a classroom upstairs on the fourth floor, learning the three circles. It's the reason we do this is so you can connect your story with the bigger story of the gospel and you can develop the discipline to actually begin doing this. Number two, go and tell. I mean, can you think about the possibilities of what would happen if everybody in front of me said, you know what, I know my one and I can't control the responses that I'm going to get from people, but I get to tell the greatest story that's ever been told in all of human history. And, it, and whether it's from a stand like this or some oil pit like down in 
South Carolina with 90 degree humidity, I will not go another year without filling the space around me with the message of Jesus. Go and tell. And then finally, repent of excuses. Why, why do we not do this? This is something that has to come from inside. It could be spiritual lethargy. I'm just lazy. It could be busyness. You know, I got a to-do list and this just hasn't been on it. Maybe it's fear of rejection. There's going to be some people laugh. There's going to be some people that tell you you're nuts. Maybe even some broken friendships over it. Jesus kind of told us that was going to be part of the deal. For some of us, it's a growing, and I'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks, a growing sense of inclusiveness. I've been here almost four years, and for the first time in about three weeks, I'll be dedicating an entire message to the subject of hell. I haven't really even spoke about hell a whole lot, except just in kind of a scant reference. But it is. It's real. People are there. More people are going there. And we're going to be talking about that in about three weeks. And it's, 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 it's not an easy or happy thing to talk about. It's, it's traumatic as a pastor to, to write a message like that. I mean, you, you put 8, 10, 12 hours into all kinds of research about this place. It, 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 you, you got to take a walk afterwards. And sometimes I think our lethargy is, is enabled by a sense of, well, you know, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe, maybe they'll be okay. I mean, maybe, maybe there's another way. Brothers and sisters, the only way that's true is if Jesus is a liar. That's the only way that's true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. If that's not true, then Jesus isn't just a way. He's no way at all. And we all need to go, I don't know, become Muslim or something. But if Jesus is who he said he was, and what he said there is true, then there is no other way. Sometimes we need to shock ourselves back into that reality to develop the kind of passion and discipline that we need to maybe overcome some of that fear of rejection. And by the way, according to the stats, only one out of four is going to be openly hostile to you anyway, or to me. But let me tell you what could potentially happen if you turn this in the direction of obedience. There's probably, I, I doubt there's anybody in here, unless you happen to be in the last service as well, that's ever heard the name Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball lived in the 19th century. He was a Sunday school teacher at the Mount Vernon Congregational Church just outside of Boston. His class was made up of older teen boys, boys between the ages of 15 and 18. Sometimes we put out a call around here for some godly men to come and, and influence our teenagers to actually dedicate some time on a weekly basis, a weekly commitment to invest in their lives. And I, I wonder sometimes if some men say no because they don't see the value in it or because they wonder, you know, if there's really even any hope. Well, let, let me tell you, if, if that's the way you feel, Edward Kimball would, would have been one of those guys too. One of his students in particular, he said this of them, I have seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely to ever become a Christian. Some of you are like, yeah, that, that's my boys. Like, <laughs> but that boy stayed in the class. Edward Kimball kept being faithful, kept investing. And eventually that young boy accepted Mr. Kimball's invitation to come and see. That young boy's name was Dwight L. Moody. Moody Bible Institute. You may have heard of it. 
But it doesn't stop there. Fast forward about 20 years later, Moody is preaching the gospel, and he begins counseling a, a young man. Kimball's up there in the, the, the far left. Moody's right in the middle. Moody starts counseling this young man that's on the bottom left there. His name is J. Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman will become a follower of Jesus. He'll go on to become a Presbyterian evangelist. Some years later, not long after that, in fact, there's a young man on Wilbur Chapman's staff. He's over at the top right there. He's a former baseball player, a young man named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday will become a follower of Jesus at a Pacific Garden mission meeting, and he'll be mentored by Chapman for a number of years. Fast forward even further now to 1924. Sunday is a famous evangelist holding meetings in Charlotte, North Carolina. There's a, a prayer meeting that has emerged. We have prayer here twice a month every other Thursday night. Some people I've discovered don't do that because, again, it just there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of flash in the pan with that. There's certainly not a lot of usually immediate goals and responses for that. But these men grew, and they dedicated themselves to regular times of prayer and intercession on behalf of their city, and they would do so for the next 10 years. And in 1934, they would invite a man bottom right, named Mordecai Ham, back to their city to preach the gospel with the cooperation of a number of churches in that city. And on a warm night in May 1934, Mordecai Ham got up and proclaimed the gospel, and a 15-year-old boy made a decision to follow Jesus, the son of a Charlotte, North Carolina dairy farmer named Billy Graham. Billy Graham, in his life, touched 3.2 million people with the gospel. Now, you have to ask yourself, God is sovereign over the affairs of men, so if Edward Kimball had been dishonest, disobedient, would this have happened anyway? Probably. That's not what this is about. The issue is whether or not we're going to choose to be the one to be involved in that. See, 3.2 million people know and follow Jesus in the 20th century because in the 19th century, a Sunday school teacher you never even heard about until this morning decided that he would see the value of one. What about you? Will you be intentional? Will you be accountable? Will you say today, I will be one. I will be that person who makes disciples. I will find my one. I will tell them about the one. And generations from now, I will have the faith to know that after I am long dead, everything will change because of one. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you that it is faith in things that will transcend even our own existence. It's not the, the get-rich-quick. It's not the fast success stuff that you're interested in. It's the slow and easy move of time and your sovereign will over history that we get to play a role in, in many ways, just like surfers. We just get to ride the wave. And so, Lord, I pray that today more people would grab surfboards, more people in front of me would understand and be encouraged by the power of one. And may we be obedient to you in all these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. 
And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.